Welcome to Playback Daily for Friday the 3rd of February. I'm Louise Herity and here's what's coming up. Yeah, it will. I mean, consider the Dublin bikes, for example. I use them myself very regularly. And they're very convenient. You can hop on them, hop off them. Um, But if you had to wear a helmet, effectively, you'd cut potential users by 90%. Um, It wasn't my idea, but I'm really pleased that someone in Ireland came up with it because it's a song that's extremely relevant to me at the moment. First of all, you know the person because you've obviously spent time with them at this stage and think to yourself, if we were out in a restaurant, what type of restaurant? What's their favourite dish? What do we like about that restaurant from the ambience to the music? How can you recreate that in a home setting? Morning Ireland spoke about the noticeable increase in the number of people contacting the Irish Network Against Racism who say they've had to deal with racist incidents in recent weeks. An RTE social affairs correspondent, Alva Keneally, joined Anya Lawler to discuss. Yeah, so INAR is this organisation that monitors racism. So people who are subject to racism, they can contact it and then it collates the figures and then publishes them every March. But what they found in recent weeks is that there's been a rise in the number of people contacting it daily regarding racist incidents. So they're getting around double the contacts they'd normally get each day. So if you take their member organisations, so you're talking about about 100 community groups, anti-racism groups, that kind of thing, participants at workshops that they hold around the country. Um, There's also been a real rise in people saying that they're now living in fear. People understand that the direct targets of this hatred uh, are the people living in accommodation centres, but they also sense uh, that for, for the rest of minority people on the outside, they are also the real targets of this. And people are picking up on the fear, on the, the, the sense of entitlement uh, to be hostile to them that's being caused by misinformation and rumour spreading in communities. And that was the director of INARS, the Irish Network Against Racism, Shane O'Curry, talking to you, Alva. Is that right? That's right. Shane O'Curry uh, points out that the National Action Plan Against Racism, which is two years overdue, um, it actually contains provisions for community development to do deep integration work that's necessary. Now, that's expected to be published in March. We'll have to wait and see. But Shane O'Curry believes that much of the anger on the streets we've seen of late is a reaction by people to things like cuts in services. So cuts to community development, lack of housing security, the rising cost of living, job insecurity, and that this is leading to some people deciding to take part in the protests that we're seeing of late. All of these factors are combining to make people's lives very insecure and anxious and people are feeling frustrated and angry. Uh, And without people articulating clearly those frustrations, cynical manipulators are stepping into the void and spreading rumours and directing that anger towards scapegoats in the community. And, you know, all across the country, we've been seeing different protests throughout the week. We heard earlier from Micheál Lehan talking about the concern, uh, certainly in the government and political circles uh, about this. But but there is, you, you know, not all protests are the same and they're not all about the same concerns. Talk to us about that. 
Yeah, and the Minister for Justice, Simon Harris, he acknowledged on this programme yesterday that people have a right to protest, but he asked communities um, not to allow their concerns and fears be hijacked by the far right because there have been some extreme protests where online videos have shown violence being threatened against migrants and Gardaí. And the Minister for Integration, Joe O'Brien, he acknowledged that messaging needed to be improved in relation to international protection applicants. I think at a central level we can be clearer on our messaging in terms of international protection applicants. It's harder to do because they come from different circumstances, different countries. There's different regimes that people are fleeing that are very oppressive. Uh, there are regimes that have really serious human rights records, poor ones. There are countries where there are civil wars that people are fleeing as well. And they're not as well known or, or as well recognised as the Ukraine situation that's on our screens every day. So therein in itself is, is a difficulty in communicating the fact that people are fleeing uh, situations that are dangerous. Uh, and so we, I think we, we need to give a general message that people uh, seeking international protection have the legitimate right to do so and that we will assess their applications in a fair and quick way here. In a fair and quick way, that phrase from the Minister of State, Joe O'Brien, there. But as we were hearing from Michal Lahan earlier in the programme, Roderick O'Gorman, the Children's Minister, and it's his department that's mainly dealing with this, he's written to all his ministerial colleagues with this urgent appeal for any building, any empty building that can be used uh, to shelter refugees and asylum seekers at the moment. So what, what does that say about the scale of the need right now? Yeah, and I mean, this, re, I suppose, reinforces um, last Monday, they came out saying we'll take, you know, four to, you know, four to six buildings nationwide. And now I suppose this letter explains what kind of buildings they're looking for. Um, but if, if we go back to the 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 protests, you know, um, underpinning this. And there was a protest in Mullingar last night. Um, around 300 people showed up. Uh, many locals were there. There were also some supporters from Dublin in attendance. It was peaceful. They walked from the gates of Column Barracks. Um, up and this is a plan, uh, this is a protest about a plan that f to accommodate refugees within the on the barracks grounds. Is that right? That's right. Intense. Tents? And it's 120 that they plan to accommodate. Um, so it was a peaceful protest. Um, the concern there was that, yeah, 120 men were being moved into tents on the grounds of the barracks. Now, the Department of Children has said it would be temporary refugee accommodation and that the intention was that no person would stay more than a number of weeks before they're moved on. But two women from the area expressed their concerns to our colleague Laura Fletcher. And while this clip you're about to hear, it does go into these women's particular concerns. It's important to say that there's no evidence that these men coming into the barracks pose any threat because we don't want strangers I, I particularly don't want strangers around my children my children have been boxing there for four years they come here five nights a week but now I'm afraid to let my kids come here I'm afraid that there's going to be strangers around them like I, you reach for little kids, teenagers you know a scary lot of men right behind them no and we don't know them and so everybody's struggling like we understand some of them are struggling but, but why is it 120 men coming into that barracks like I just don't understand it. I don't think it should be allowed. I don't think they should be allowed in our local barracks. Two women at a protest in Mullingar this weekend in Alva Keneally's report on Morning Ireland. On Today with Claire Byrne, the host brought up the topic of helmets for cyclists and currently there's no legal obligation to wear a helmet or high-vis clothing, but the Road Safety Authority does recommend both. 
Claire spoke to transport consultant Connor Faulkner and Tim Lynch, consultant neurologist at the Dublin Neurological Institute at the Matter Hospital. Connor, first to you, helmets for cycling, specifically or not, whether we should wear them when we ride, it tends to be a topic, isn't it, that elicits a, a strong opinion from cyclists and non-cyclists alike, would you agree? Yeah, it seems to be a hot button issue, uh, uh, Claire, and you know people get triggered by it. Um, and essentially, on one side, you have a, a cycling lobby, if you like, who say that cycling should be normal; it should be an everyday thing. You shouldn't have to wear high vis and helmets. You shouldn't need them um, in a safe urban environment uh, in a, cities like uh, Copenhagen, for example, or some of the European cities. There are huge numbers of cyclists, and they don't wear helmets, and they're very safe. Um, and, and to my mind the real problem with uh, with cycling helmets is not that they're not effective. They are, and it's very good practice to wear them. The, the difficulty, Claire, is that when you make them compulsory, no matter what you intend the outcome of that law to be, what actually happens is that the number of people cycling goes down. Uh, so it's an unintended consequence. And uh, to my mind, I'm, I'm I would not agree with making cycling helmets compulsory. Because you think um, it will put people off cycling. It will. Yeah, it will. I mean, consider the Dublin bikes, for example. I use them myself very regularly. And they're very convenient. You can hop on them, hop off them. Um, but if you had to wear a helmet, effectively, you'd cut potential users by 90%. Okay. Do you carry your own helmet around with you? Um, it, it puts people off. Um, and just as much so using their own bikes, as I say, um, Helmet use is growing. It's becoming more commonplace. People are listening to the advice. Uh, safety in that sense is probably improving. Mm -hmm. uh, but the act of making it compulsory, um, unfortunately, does more harm than good, no matter how good your intention Tim, what do you say to that? So as a neurologist, I suppose I'm interested in the mind and brain, <clears throat> which is a pretty special organ. So your 100 billion neurons are up there and nicely bathed in all these glial cells and CSF that bathes around it. And it's a delicate organ. It sloshes around inside your skull. So when you get a head injury, unfortunately, coming off a bike, uh, you have what we call a coup contra coup injury. Your head hits the ground, the skull stops, the brain still keeps moving inside the skull and gets smacked off the front and smacked off the back as it ricochets back and forth, injuring the brain, which can be, of course, mild, like a concussion, and you recover over a period of time. But you get moderate to severe, and severe means either death or disability, and that means cognitive impairment requiring care for the rest of your life, which is a problem. So um, then you look at the data. So the data is the key thing here. And as Connor says, uh, helmets are helpful. I mean, there's hard data for that. There's a group called the Cochrane Systematic Review in the UK. It's a very jaundiced group of people who assess data very carefully and issue reports on a regular basis. And they've done three of those in head on helmets. In one of them, they've shown over the review a 63 to about an 80% drop in significant head injury if you wear a bicycle helmet. So helmets are good. And they work. Yes. But what about Connor's point? If you make them compulsory, you put people off cycling, particularly the casual user who's maybe using the Dublin bikes system. Yep. So then I suppose the other two reviews, one was looking at the non-legislative approach, which is encouraging, which I think is important and definitely worthwhile. And Connor's correct. We need to try and educate people and children upwards, particularly that these are, it's important to be properly geared up if you're on the bike, because you can come off it. You will come off the bike at some stage. That's shown to be somewhat effective, but there was a, a further review by the Cochrane Group looking at legislation. And they showed the bike helmet use went up from about 45% to 85% when you legislated for it on top of it. So 
as a neurologist, when I see that, I see helmets good. If you have legislation, you use more helmets. Connor's point about less use of helmets is a valid point, particularly for the city bikes. But there must be ways and means we can figure that out. One is you could have free helmets, which could be cheap helmets available to bikes. And that has been looked at as one of the studies looking at the non-legislative way of encouraging bike use. So there's got to be a way around that. And then also Connor knows our transport system in Dublin really is not adequate at all at this stage. Whether, uh, you know, we need a metro, we need a decent system to get the the cars off the road. We don't have that. Uh, We have a whole series of bike lanes being put in recent times. They're not the same standard as the Netherlands are in Denmark either way. Connor mentioned Denmark. That's kind of interesting, I suppose, because, I mean, do accidents, cycle, bicycle accidents happen in Denmark? Well, absolutely. There were 16,500 patients treated in 2014 in hospital for falling off their bike mm-hmm. in Denmark. And I'm not sure the majority of those were single. They weren't hit by a car, they just falls. So that we have to consider that, yes, you can get hit by a car, but also you can fall off your bike. My young son came off his bike about three weeks ago, landed on his face and broke a bunch of teeth. Now, he wasn't hit by a car, it just it was a slip and down you go. So you do fall off bikes, yeah. irrespective. So we should gear up in that circumstance and accept that and decrease injuries subsequently. So, so, so Connor, I have uh, messages coming in here mm-hmm. and quite a few of them would like to see mandatory helmets. And this one goes further. Helmets and high-vis jackets should be law, should be dealt with in legislation. Some people don't have lights or high-vis jackets and are impossible for most to see on the road. That's another reason, is it not, for mandatory safety gear? Well, yes. And, and, you know, it is compulsory to have lights on your bike for obvious reasons. And most people go beyond that. Um, so if you see people cycling at night, mostly they are in high vis and they are wear, wearing helmets. So, uh, you know, the practice is improving. So the debate really, there's a, a, perhaps no point of difference between Tim and I. I mean, I would certainly accept that helmets are effective and we need to improve cycling facilities. But I think if you look at countries like the Netherlands and uh, famously Copenhagen, where nearly 50% of all commuters use bicycles, um, you know, the, it, it's not without its problems, as Tim has been saying. And actually, cycling numbers in Copenhagen have fallen back a little bit. So it's, it's not like they're perfect, but it's a big sea change. You have large volumes of cyclists safely using urban cycleways. Uh, and of course, there'll be misadventure in life. But in a broad sense, it's a very safe activity for them. And it's a safe way to do it. So our debate really is how do we get the Dublins and Corks and Limericks uh, and Tullamores and everywhere in Ireland up to that level of cycling? Um, and, and a, you know, a key way to do that is to encourage participation. And unfortunately, despite the good intentions of legislation, um, I, I remain of the view that com- the compulsory helmets, compulsory high vis actually pull cycling numbers down. And that's a retrograde step. And um, so everything in the space of encouragement, if you look at kids wearing cycle helmets these days, Claire, you know, 20 years ago, it was the exception rather than the rule. It's near universal now. Um, and there's other things in the promotion of cycling. We need to make sure that mm. teenagers cycle more than they do, particularly girls. And um, there's a real fall off in cycling in girls' secondary schools. Uh, uniform skirts don't help and you know, there's other reasons why it doesn't happen um, but again compulsory but I don't, helmets I don't know will just how, inhibit I don't know how you, you look at um, numbers of people cycling and the drop off in teenage girls cycling mm-hmm. and relate that to helmet wearing I, I don't see I, where, I how you're crossing that bridge Yeah no I don't directly Claire except insofar as to say that you want to do everything you can to encourage cycling compulsory helmet use will, will, will drag against that but, it'll be an inhibitor okay. 
So, now, so encouraging great. people to cycle is one thing. Keeping people alive and keeping their brains healthy is another. Well, true, Claire. And there's absolutely no debate that if you're going to fall off your bike and you're bound to at some stage, you're much better off with a helmet on than without one. That's not a debate. So cyclists, wherever they can, should universally be wearing helmets as often as they can. And, and in practice, that's beginning to happen more and more as it, it's normalised in the culture. Look at the cyclists in Dublin today most of them will be wearing helmets and that number continues to grow and that's a good thing. Uh, So as I say, the conversation is how do you improve these things? Is it with tougher laws or is it some other way? We sometimes have a similar conversation about drink driving, Claire. I mean, I bet you if we ask people listening to us now, loads of people will come back and say a zero alcohol limit uh, or much tougher drink drive laws. Um, And, you know, it's a debate, but actually by way of policy, it's probably not the best way of going about it. We have good laws at the moment we need to enforce. So in the cycling space, you know, lots to do to improve cycling facilities, to encourage the development of cycling. Um, But in my view, and I I think borne out internationally, compulsory helmets is one of those things that sounds like a good idea until you try and impose it. And then you realise that the collateral problems that your well-meaning act causes. All right. Well, I want to bring uh, Tim Tim back in here because we have some listeners saying the best thing is safe cycling lanes everywhere. That would be more beneficial and a ban on cars in the city and also fast, careless driving that needs to be policed more. That's the real problem, because if we look at the other countries and other cities that Connor mentioned, where people are less inclined to wear helmets, they're cycling on safer in safer places with better systems, infrastructure. Yeah, that's a good point. I think the the Dutch um, are interesting. They're a cycle culture and the best cycle culture in the world. But they have over 200 deaths per year from accidents and bikes. And they have 75,000 people hit the casualty per year coming off bikes. So it happens, irrespective, mm-hmm. even though they're safer and they are safer. So and Dutch, a Danish study found actually in bicycle accidents, 60% were single bike accidents. It wasn't that they hit a car, they fell off the bike. So my son, three weeks ago, came off his bike, the rubber on the handle slipped, he went over the handlebars, landed on his face and broke teeth. It happens. So it's going to happen. And you can make it more, the city safer, certainly from a car viewpoint, but there will still be accidents. So as a neurologist, protecting brain, I still think helmets on and we've got to figure out a way around the issues as Conrad had with the bikes, etc., in, in the city. And do you accept that <clears> it might discourage some people from cycling if they were forced to wear a helmet? There is some data about that, and Conor, I'm sure, knows that in Australia, that is compulsory in Melbourne and other places, and they did find a drop-off on that. But I think that's an educational aspect to it. I mean, if you get up to go on a bike, you get your gear up, you put your stuff on, pick up the helmet, get on the bike, off we go. You know, I don't see the particular issue in that. Now, on the other hand, I suppose, is it cool to wear a helmet? You can use that term. I did ask my 17-year-old yesterday this, and her point was, well, if I straighten my hair, it goes frizzy. That's it. Helmet hair <laughs> thing. <laughs> so, uh, OK, point made. So we got to be clever in design. So we need an Irish helmet. Let's put the best bicycle helmet in the world. Let's figure that out and make one that doesn't do that. And it can be cool and not sweaty coming off the bike. OK, I get that. But that's something, again, that design can get to. Meantime, back at the ranch, let's protect the brain. Mm. I always think it's a bit like the starfish story, which, you know, and I use that recently, which is the story of the man who goes on the beach and he sees this little boy running back and forth throwing things into the sea gets down to the beach and there's hundreds and thousands of starfish who are dying and drying out on the beach and he asks the little boy well, why are you doing that they're all going to die and he picks the boy picks up a starfish throws in the sea and turns it made a difference to him Tim Lynch and Connor Faulkner on today with Claire Byrne
Well, it's the night Ireland decides who'll represent us at the Eurovision Song Contest in Liverpool this May and Sinead Crowley, RTE's arts and media correspondent, was at the rehearsals for the Late Late Show Eurosong and had this report for Morning Ireland. Hello! As the Eurosong contestants met the press ahead of tonight's final, one man was the focus of much of the attention. Hello! John Lydon of Public Image Limited and formerly the Sex Pistols will tonight perform Hawaii. Why did you want to enter your vision? Because I was asked. Um, it wasn't my idea, but I'm really pleased that someone in Ireland came up with it because it's a song that's extremely relevant to me at the moment. Uh, and I'm having to endure the slow demise of my wife and to be able to write a song about that. And for it to end up to be, I think, quite beautiful, it's, it's quite an achievement. There are also five other contestants, including Aji from County Donegal. I'm a super fan of the Eurovision and I've been a songwriter for a long time. I've been an artist for a long time and yeah, I think this song that I have this year is a great sort of contender to, to be in the contest. Um, I've added a little bit more to the song as well. I've added a little bit of Irish language to the song. And Connolly from Connemara. From a little island off the coast of Galway called Let's Ramalang, um, in the Gaeltacht, and I wrote the song when I was 17. I would say it's quite a moody kind of song, very atmospheric. Lead singer of Wild Youth, Conor O'Donoghue, says he's a big Eurovision fan. It was always a tradition every year I'd watch it with my mum front room would be like the one night a year I could get pizza and we'd watch it. The thought of representing our country is gives me like butterflies. Uh, I would just love it. You know, we're very proud Irish men and we absolutely love this show and we love playing music so I think to be able to this would be unbelievable. Longford duo K Money and ND are hoping their song will stand out from the rest. It's the happiest sad song ever. <laughs> That's how he describes it. Yeah. So it's a song about persevering, believing in your dreams, and, and keep going even in tough times and tough periods. So. Wild singer Lilia Jane has already been getting into the Eurovision spirit. I just love being part of that community, and even. So far, I've been doing little podcasts and I've really got a sense of the lovely, kind of like vibrant community of the Eurovision. RTE's Mr Eurovision, Marty Whelan, says he's glad the live Eurosong contest is back. We're in, in, in a situation where we have a full audience, where everybody's participating. We have a, we have a, a jury here, we have an international jury. So it's a fully fledged Eurosong like we used to have. Uh, and I think that's pretty exciting. Everybody's really friendly here. We love our Eurovision. Yeah. Good. You know, lucky to have me then. <laughs> Thank you very much. Peace.
plan for the night that's in it. Ray Darcy had Brian Kennedy, who represented Ireland in Athens in 2006, and Mairead Ronan, broadcaster and Eurovision fan, on his show, not only to preview our six entrants, but also to reminisce on our history in the competition. We haven't actually qualified for the final of the Eurovision since Ryan O'Shaughnessy uh, took us there in 2018. I mean, beautiful singer, beautiful song. I, mean, I think it was a pride moment actually yeah. for us in that competition. Last person to qualify for Ireland there, Ryan O'Shaughnessy. Now, despite the dip in our success in recent years, Ireland still hold the title for most wins at the Eurovision. Mm. Seven. 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 Uh, Sweden are nipping at our heels with six wins. Uh-huh. Uh, let's remember the glory days, oh, starting yeah. off in Amsterdam in 1970. And now, the moment we've all been waiting for. Diana, the little girl from Ireland on whom all our hopes are pinned. All kinds of everything remind me of you. What's another year to someone who's lost everything that he owns? What's another year to someone who's For the last time, hold me now. Don't cry. Don't say your word. Just hold me now. And I will know though we're apart, we'll always be together. Forever in Telefi Sharon is pleased to welcome you to the annual Eurovision Song Contest from Ireland. We were the rock and roll kids. Rock and roll was all we did. And listening to those songs on the radio. And they've won it for the third time in succession. Mairead, you oh. were getting very excited <laughs> I know, during that. I was singing along to all of them and I also was saying, I was so proud when you got us through well, to thank the final you very song, much. because we, we were there, I was there, I was there but with look Ray. At the, look at the precedent that was set, all those amazing singers, mm. great songs, every song you can remember, every word of it, yep. all the choruses, all of that, so we seem to have lost our way in that sense, Yes, we don't have the chorus it's a, to It's a fun fact that you were the 1,000th 
Marine, song. Only you would know that. I know. At the Eurovision, <laughs> why do I know that? How did you become such a Eurovision geek? I don't know. How did it but happen? you were. You, am I correct in You're saying that? You're absolutely correct, of course. <laughs> you were the 1,000th competitor in Eurovision. In the, ever in the competition. Th- thank you. Welcome, Ray. I You're can well get welcome. my bag and yeah. take my kids and leave. <laughs> Your work here is done yeah. already. Yes. Bye. Is <laughs> but it, so it's obvious now. It doesn't need yeah. to be said. But you are a Eurovision fan. Yeah. So I'm a huge fan. Like loads of people are. Lots of people like to try and hide the fact they that do. the Eurovision fans. Yeah. I don't. I'm yeah. out and I'm proud. There's very little left in the closet these days, isn't yeah. there? Yeah. It's very empty in there now. Yeah. <laughs> Glad to say. Yeah, I've, I've always loved it, but I think it's because it's like, you know, there's many Liverpool fans in right. Ireland because Liverpool were having their glory days yeah. when we were kids. Like that. I was, uh-huh. you know, yes. I'm a child of the 80s. And it's happening in Liverpool. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this it year, is. Yeah, which would be yeah, amazing, yeah. I think. What are your memories of Athens? Um, I Honestly, it was uh, overrun by these kind of packs of dogs during the day, which looked very sweet during the day because they were right. all 30 or 40 dogs lying around fountains during the day. Be like, oh, don't they look nice? Then they turn into gangs in the <laughs> evening. And one of our crew got bitten and everything. I'm right. telling you. He's, look, he's laughing away. Odd memory. Odd uh, it's memory. a very odd memory. Because I, 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 was, I was hoping you might say, because there was a big yeah. debate and we yeah. were involved in that debate. Right. <laughs> Should you go down, down on one, one knee, knee or, or not? not? <laughs> That was the big debate. Well, I remember it at the time and indeed was every song a cry for love, really. Yeah. I remember that debate was going on too. I mean, the most embarrassing thing for me was looking out of my hotel, looking up, thinking, who got permission to build that hotel up there? Because it was a load of scaffolding and a load of old rocks. It was actually the Acropolis, ladies and gentlemen. How embarrassing. And they were fixing it because it was falling down. I know. I can't believe I've admitted that live on the radio. To the Irish <laughs> Times about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, but it just goes to show that there, there, there obviously wasn't a choreographer involved. You were one man on the stage singing a song. See, here's the thing: you rehearse it so much. Yeah. That's the thing. Whoever gets through tonight, pace yourself because you rehearse and rehearse, and also you stop being yourself. I no longer was Brian Kennedy anymore. I was Ireland. Yes. Hello, Ireland. Every time I went anywhere, and I was like, oh, hello, hi. Suddenly, you're a country. You're not a person. So it's not lost on you that you are representing your country at every breath. Mm. And also everybody's filming everything. So you have to be, you know, mm. on your game. Mm-hmm. But I must say every time, so there's also a very funny compilation footage somewhere. I changed the last note every time I did it. Uh-huh. Just to, to make it interesting to me. Right. But actually, I don't know what note I ended up on in the very <laughs> night. I mean, who knows? Down know. on one knee, the big note, you know. I just I just changed it up all the time. And how were you selected? It was the Late Late Show as well, was it? We did the Late Late Show. Was uh, we had a bunch vote? of, I mean, th- public vote. Uh, Jimmy McCarthy d- uh, gave us a, do you remember? The greatest song of all was his song. Do you remember yes. that? And I had a song myself. It's funny because I actually hadn't written it especially for Eurovision at oh, all. Oh, so it was just the songs. You sang them all. I sang them all. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, okay. It's an interesting concept. So you were always going to go. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. exactly right. <laughs> I was always going, going to go. go. Yeah. Athens, here we come. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Bit of a kip, though. My God. I mean, but, but it, I shouldn't. Oh, I shouldn't say really that. That's saying terrible. That. It was two thousand and six. Things. I have did. However, I did. Meet, who did I meet? Who's who's like the biggest star in Athens? Come on, nineteen seventies. Big thick glasses. Nana Muscuri. Nana Muscuri. Yes. Yes. we have a winner. Thanks. Oh <laughs> my God! Wow. Yeah, yeah. Will the white rose bloom again? Do you remember her big record? Yeah. She wore the long flowing. Until the white rose bloom again, or until the white rose blooms again. Did so she yes, wear long flowing. Lo- yes, it was not finger hugging. Tent like. It was dresses. not finger hugging. Yes. it was a very sensible gear and TV type glasses. Ma- ma- amazing big, as yeah. we used to call them, Coca Cola bottle glasses. Yes. Um. In the, and she was. Lo- it was. She I was, mean, a real legend. I got to meet her properly. A quick hello and all that. Wow. It was great. Yeah. Yeah. And you had Una Healy as your backing singer. I mean, come Dave on. Like, Una 
Healy I mean, from on. the Saturdays. Una Healy when from Tipperary. When she walked in to do that audition, first of all, yes, of course, she's a beautiful said, woman. This is going to be a trouble. And the, you know, I mean, uh, but she brought her guitar in. She sang a couple of things. Yeah. I mean, she should have been representing Ireland, not me, yeah. really. I mean, she was incredible. You, that was one of your ambitions, and probably still is, that what? you want to be a, a backing, backing singer. singer. Oh, yeah. yeah. At the Eurovision, a backing singer. I'm, I'm obviously not. Ireland. God, no. God, no, no. I'm, not, I'm obviously not good enough for that. And I'd probably, probably too old. Have never heard you now? sing, Ray? Have you heard her sing? I'm too old now. Can you give us a few bars? No. No. Smile is her party piece. Oh, do you? Yeah, but yeah. I, like I need Coffin. a certain amount of um, okay. beverages to uh, give together. us two lines of smile and go. No, and no. <laughs> We're waiting. But I did Ray? try. I desperately tried to be a backing singer when Dustin was going because I thought right. I'm definitely better than him. Yes. Yeah. Um, but he didn't. He didn't go. It with was. It. I mean, I'm, I don't mean to be mean, but you know, it was a low moment. Okay. Now a lot of people, a, a lot of people who were on the fringes would claim yeah. that that, as in Dustin going yeah. to the Eurovision representing yeah. Ireland, was the moment that changed it all for us. Mm. I blame Finland. And he, I blame Finland. And here's Lordy. why. Lordy yeah. were the ones to do this puppet thing the year that I, I represented yes. us, 2006. And they won. And I remember the media saying to me straight away, what do you think of the winning song? And I said, hum it. Sing it for me. Oh, yes. And none of them could. Because it was all about the opposite. It was the Eurovision costume okay. contest, not yes. the song contest. No, that, that was a phase. I think it's come back again. I think it's actually it's the purest it's been in a long time, as in the song matters. It song does. Counts. But okay. all of it matters. The song matters... The look, the styling—it helps. All it, I think it, I it think does it matters. definitely help. Yeah, I think you can have a, a great song. You kind of want to fancy the singer, don't you? You, you want to sit at home and go, "Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely." You do, you yeah. do. You go, you want to go. They're gorgeous. Oh my god, that outfit! See, oh. Like I, I, I'm a bit frustrated in a way because there was Brooke. We said Brooke last yeah. year yeah. with a very good song. Good song, yeah. really Stag- good vocal. The staging wasn't great, and I'm looking at Brooke now and Dancing with the Stars. She's and a she's really good dancer. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that was a wasted opportunity. But anyway, uh-huh. that's gone. We can't be the old yes, but it's not the Eurovision dance competition. It's the, it's about the singing and the song. Has to keep coming back to that. I think. Yes, I really okay. do. Sorry to harp on about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, for example, like and and people cite this, and this is this is from six years ago now, Portugal. Oh, yeah, and that was very much the song, song and the vocal. There was uh-huh. no staging. Here we go. No gimmicks, no bells and whistles. No. And also not in English, you know. Yeah. And that's mm. what I used to love about the competition back yeah. in the day. You'd hear, you but, know, not English sung songs. And that's like Madeleine Peru or something. It's really moving and beautiful, I think. Uh, and do you have favourites from over the years? Oh, Laureen Euphoria is, is still yeah. my one of my favourites. Really? So good. Back to your Ibiza days. Yeah. Throwing yourself around passion. Oh. I know. the gays in the arena <laughs> I mean well, well it's flags flags and gays it's a flags, flags and gays, everywhere you know, yeah. Yeah, for flags everywhere say. but on all no, of the songs we've played there yeah. so from our winning ones to the, the Portuguese one to the Swedish one there Lorraine all of them are flawless vocals yeah flawless yeah. this vocals. is true yeah now that euphoria typical Eurovision song mm. now I know I know a lot of them haven't won recently but yeah. there's a lot of them in the competition 
Yeah, there is a lot Isn't of Isn't there? Yeah. Yes. But the style of them, you mean. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. Eurodance sort of. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not so impressed by that, I must say. I want to hear something different. And also, can we now not have any Beyonce hair flinging around? <laughs> I mean, I'm over it now. First couple of times, it was like, fair play, girl, well, well, doing that and singing at the same time, but no. Well, that's only a fair... Spain last year. Spain last that was year be- was... Out beyonce Beyonce. It, it did, yeah. and it was amazing. It made, like, say, Salome and Dancing with the Stars, you know, the dancer and Dancing yes. with the Stars that we all can't take our eyes off. It made her look like a nun. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, and it's just a sign of my age and the fact that I'm a dad, but I thought it was X-rated, you know, at that time. Ah, right, it was brilliant. <laughs> Would you, you stop? You, you loved it. I heard you'd watched it on Sunday morning I, right, again. I can see you over Sunday re- morning with you your Beyonce there. wig on, giving <laughs> it loads. If, if, if you want to get involved, 51551, ray at rte.e. Jenny said he watched it again we're eventually morning. Going to, we're eventually going to preview uh, the six contenders. Singer Brian Kennedy and broadcaster Mairead Ronan on the Ray Darcy show earlier. Valentine's Day is just around the corner and earlier Claire Byrne had Chef Brian McDermott on the show with tips on how to create a romantic meal for the love of your life. And look, um, people seem to find this difficult to do. But what I think about a night like this is, first of all, you know the person because you've obviously spent time with them at this stage. And think to yourself, if we were out in a restaurant, what type of restaurant? What's their favourite dish? What do we like about that restaurant from the ambience to the music? How can you recreate that in a home setting? And we tend not to do it. I know we certainly do it a little bit more now since COVID times, but it's looking at, can I dim the lights? But more importantly, decide upon a menu that, you know, your partner is going to like and have a little bit of surprise in there and it is make it an occasion announce that you're going to do it almost invite them and say look I'm cooking um, and we're cooking whether it's the 14th or this long weekend and then do up a little menu and whether that's a WhatsApp message just saying oh you're invited to this and this is the menu knowing what they like and then plan it and make sure if you're cooking that you're not stuck in the kitchen and you're leaving someone on their own at the table for the whole night Can we can we instruct the, the other person in this relationship to do the to do the meal, can we do? Is that allowed well, in the I, romantic rules? I would say, Claire, you'll win with that one. Certainly, <laughs> <laughs> I, I tell you, I, would, I don't think I could win an argument well, in that house. Listen, <laughs> given given that I cook, you know, three hundred and sixty yeah. days a year, it might be nice for someone else to take it over. Do you you know could suggest thinking? it. <laughs> Just looking at the date because. Valentine's Day is on a Tuesday this year. This is a really good year to do it because you're not going to go out and get a babysitter probably. You might do it the weekend before but the night of Valentine's this is a good idea I think this year when it falls during the week. I totally agree and I think if you if you are going to do it you know if you have put the menu together and you're saying look hands up I'm doing it do it within your limitations and try and get as much of it done as possible even the day or the evening before mm-hmm. you know and, and on that morning if you're free that day so that you're taking the type of food that kind of tearing and sharing and ripping into and enjoying and together you're eating it and also you have to think a lot more you have to think not just the ambience you have to think the music and you know one thing is a pet hate for me is scented candles because I think that's going to overpower each and every dish that's going to be cooked and all you're going to smell is this false 
fake, smell, oh perfumey. God, I love a smelly from, candle. Well, not on a night that you're cooking maybe food. Not, I think maybe the food not. should be the aroma that's taking place. So you said there earlier, um, make sure you're not slaving in the kitchen the whole way through this because that's not going to be much fun for anybody. So how do you avoid that? That's in the choice of your dishes. So what I've gone for is it's a table of two. And if you're a typical table of four or six at home, decide what corner of that table you're going to use and dress it that way. Have room in the middle of the table because if you're arriving and you're thinking whether it's a, you know, a glorified cottage pie, a nice sharing dish that has maybe lamb in it like a hot pot, has the potato on it so there's no serving separate dishes. Leave room in the middle of that table and get it in there as that style of, you know, go and take what you want because God forbid you would decide you're going to serve a portion a certain size. Expect someone to eat it or they didn't eat it and you're going, oh God, they didn't like it. What's wrong? So that taken as you want is a nice way to do it and Mm -hmm. it just uh, avoids any upset. So a good make-ahead dish then, something that you can do the day before? Yeah, absolutely. And that's why, you know, in our suggestions, and we're going to share lots of recipes online for this one this week because it's taken everything from a cottage pie to the likes of, you know, a chicken, a stir-fry. If you're thinking something lighter, somebody's on a health drive since January, they've continued it, do a stir-fry. How are you successful at a stir-fry? It is definitely showcased. That one's got to be done in front and it is making sure with a stir-fry you don't add all the vegetables into one bowl and all of those into a wok one by one you add your vegetables so that they stay crunchy crisp and don't end up a soggy mess because that is a disaster for now this is news to me Brian yeah yeah. add them in separately no you got to you know and well the way I look at a stir fry is first of all as you say the likes of carrots you've got to start with oil infuse the flavor of the oil okay whether it's ginger garlic and a bit of chilli if you wish on a night like that just to heaten and spice things up a little bit then add in the hardest vegetable mix so for me it's the julienne carrot the little florets of broccoli not loads of bean sprouts that are full of water you know and not those pre-mixes that you yeah, buy because they're going to cook just too quickly they're yeah. just going to go to a soggy yeah. mess and then really you're only locking about 30 seconds to a minute between each vegetable sweet peppers red onions finish it off zest a lemon little bit of soy sauce not too much and that's a success to a stir fry so, so now I'm told that all of your recipes and you have supplied a lot, which mm. is great. Uh, lots of ideas. They're all up on the website rt.ie forward slash today CB. They're there now so people can go and have a look at the tear and share focaccia with rosemary and cheese, the classic pesto with focaccia, crispy prawn dippers. That sounds like work. No. Um, fish, prawns, seafood. Okay, if you want to elevate the night, okay, because we go on holidays occasionally and if we're away, I think people eat more seafood out of this country than they do in it. We're an island, we need to remind ourselves of that. The fish has probably passed them on the flight and the way out leaving this country. So, (laughs) you know, let's look at what we have and we have here. And if you are, and and you will know if your partner likes seafood and if they like it, we always talk about prawns or lobsters. Like, oh God, no, we couldn't have that for two reasons. Number one, maybe not affordability, but prawns are accessible and reasonable. The way to cook them is less is more and for this particular dish what I'm saying is not deep fat frying heat and warm a little bit of shallow quality rapeseed oil in a bowl we're going to have corn flour to that we're going to add in some spices cayenne a little bit of paprika to it then I'm going to have some sesame seeds and some ginger and really you're going to dip your prawns in into the corn flour so you're creating almost like a tempura style very light I actually did this at the weekend and I got loads of reaction on social media because you could see the prawns through the batter that's the secret success to this. And when you're just using corn flour and not adding a liquid to it, it's going to crisp up, 
protect the prawn and then inside you have the little bit of spice and then I put toasted sesame seeds on it, some lime squeezed over the top of it and almost like you're sitting in Spain, create a little sort of ceramic pot of that or even a pre-starter just at the start and you're eating into them, you get this burst of sweetness, saltiness, not difficult at all. And your oil is very hot, is it, when you're Yeah, well, it's it's getting up to, as I always say, when there's life in it. And the way to test oil, because we need to be very, very careful here. If you want to use a deep fat fryer, you can, because it's got a built-in safety mechanism. But if it's just shallow frying, which is what I'm recommending, take a little bit of breadcrumb or a corner of bread and just let it fall into the oil. And if it kind of floats on the top and kind of you hear this little, well, that's it sort of ready. You know, it's not, if it sinks to the bottom, the oil is not warm enough. Mm-hmm. And if it's not warm enough, you're gonna going You're going to be scraping the prawns from the bottom. Oh, the coating's <laughs> going to have left them. And guess what? The start of the night's a disaster. The romance is They're, out the window. Forget it, you're going to bed early. Uh, what are you, you dipping, not, yeah, not for, for any reason that you might be interested in. Um, what are you dipping the prawn into? Corn flour with a little bit of seasoning in there. So we've got paprika, we've got cayenne pepper. But so we're no, to eat it, are you, are you dipping yeah, it in? Yeah, I, I like a little lemon mayonnaise, something okay. simple. Yeah, you know, we, we tend to stay away from garlics on night like that for obvious reasons, don't we? So, <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know oh, what's going on with the lights are dimming in the studio. I don't know what you're planning, but... <laughs> don't worry, don't worry. Listen, let's talk about dessert because I like this one because it's, it's very simple and I think that pretty much everybody will like a vanilla and lemon cheesecake. You're not giving us any chocolate options here. No, because I think it's easy and I think when it comes to chocolate, we go and miss and we put it in the fridge and I think people will, will you know, go there and find that or they have a favourite recipe there. can be a little bit heavy because we still are we still are in winter so that's why I'm going with a little bit of lamb or maybe beef or mm-hmm. the stir fry style options. But what is creamy about a cheesecake? Keeping it light, not having a setting agent in there. Go with your, your digestive biscuit style crumb, little bit of butter into the base and then all I'm doing after that is taking good quality cream cheese and I'm whipping it, lightening it up but it can break down Icing sugar is going into that and double cream. So don't whip the double cream separately. I think mm-hmm. that's where people go wrong. All into one bowl. Zest of lemon, good quality vanilla. You're going to have creaminess, zestiness. It's going to freshen up at the end of a meal and it's light and it's creamy. But do allow about 30 minutes before serving dessert because I don't know about you, I probably overeat. Yeah, <laughs> we all, we all <laughs> do. Home. Isn't that the problem? Are you making that cheesecake the day before as well? Definitely. Definitely. And it will not in any way stiffen up as a cheesecake. Just cling film over the top of it. Why? Just to prevent it taking on any unnecessary smells in your fridge. And then take it out for at least a half an hour and let it come up to room temperature. Because cheesecake straight from the fridge to me, arguably not that nice. Mm, no, you lose all the flavour, don't yeah, you? It's just beautiful. I just want to reverse back a little bit to our main course because cottage pie is something that I think for many people is a bit of a, a midweek dinner, not particularly special, but you're saying you can you can elevate it. Yeah, because it's comfort. And again, if you find that comfort in someone and then if you're going to elevate it. So if it has the, the, the mashed top, make sure it's really buttery or add in a good quality cheddar cheese, something that is just going to lift it, enrich in it, but also add a little bit of mustard, just a tablespoon at the end of making the base of the cottage pie, not Dijon. Dijon can be hot and fiery and peppery. Gets a little bit more creamy as well. It looks slightly split in there. So for me, maybe a middle ground of a good French mustard. And when you work that in, you're getting the peppery, robust flavour coming out of that. And it's a point where you just go, oh, 
That's not Slightly the standard different. Wednesday night one. What's different about that? And that's really just taking something that's comforting, classic, can go in the middle of the table. You know your partner loves and likes and is maybe the favourite. You've elevated it and both people are happy. And a side with that is? Uh, side, because you've got potatoes on it, you not necessarily need it. So what I've suggested in the whole menu collection this week is maybe introduce the likes of a patatas bravas, which is just your diced potato, tomatoes, maybe bring in an Irish chorizo, fry it in alongside it, have that as well with a little sort of dip in mayonnaise as a kind of pre-starter surprise element because remember you've invited, you've shown off the menu, you've talked this up, so there still has to be a little element of surprise and do dress well for the occasion, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Chef Brian McDermott on Today with Claire Byrne. The first weekend in February also means it's the start of the Six Nations Rugby. Lindsay Peat, former Ireland international and Gavin Casey, sports writer with the 42.ie, joined Claire Byrne today to look ahead. And Gavin first spoke about Ireland going into the competition as favourites. Yeah, absolutely not. I don't think there's a need to shy away from it or to shirk the weight of expectation that comes with being the world's number one team in an official capacity. In reality, I would say that France, Claire, are still the best team in the world. It's almost algorithmically or or based on a point system that Ireland are world number ones. But Ireland are certainly right up there and their form dictates as much. If you go back 12 months to when we played France in Paris, uh, France were deserved winners over Ireland that day and they haven't really put a foot wrong since. So I always find it a little bit unfair that France aren't officially the world's number one team. But I think Ireland are justifiable favourites for this tournament on the basis that they have France at home. And in very simple terms, that home advantage can be worth a maybe a seven to ten point swing on a good day. So with France and England at home, as you mentioned, in the uh, tournament closer, it's usually these uneven years where Ireland tend to excel. So, Lindsay, your take on that, Ireland or France as favourites, what are you more comfortable with? Um, either or, I suppose. You know, uh, I've been asked this question many times. You kind of look at it as a player, you kind of look at it as a as a supporter, you know. And if I was a player going into it, you kind of think it, it depends on personalities. You know, I'd be not standing up and be proud of world number one and kind of, you know, not egging people on, but you like what Andy Farrell has instilled in his team. And he was, as a player, he was very aggressive. He was very, he never, st- you know, st- stood back. And he's kind of instilled in his team not only a really nice way to play, everyone looks very happy, comfortable in their role, they're enjoying their rugby, but he's also kind of said to them, embrace it. Um, you know, and when Warren Gatlin made his comment about, you know, having a free shot at Ireland, you know, and, and his, bite, his bite back was, well, it might buy him a free shot after the game because there's no free shots in Test Rugby. I think that's mm-hmm. saying it all. If that's the manager publicly saying about that. And that builds confidence in your team. Uh, I do agree with Kevin. I think the French have been undermined, but I don't think they'll, I think they'll like that. Um, the Fran- French, I think they're 10 games unbeaten. I think it's been their best record and consistent run uh, of wins. And they've been, you know, they've been, They've been good for them. They've played some really, really good rugby. Um, so I think it'll be key this weekend to see if we can get a win to start off the tournament. But I also think the key then to the success and how far we've come in that 12 months since that loss in Paris will be the home game against France. You mentioned, um, you, sorry to interrupt you, Lindsay, but you mentioned nope. um, Andy Farrell there and Vincent Hogan had a, a long piece about Andy Farrell. He spoke to lots of former players, other uh, coaches, unnamed sources in the business. It was a really 
positive review of what Andy has done. Some of the lines in there that the atmosphere is more relaxed in the Ireland camp. They're very attack minded now and they're really comfortable in their own skins and they're enjoying themselves. He's been good for the team. He has, and I can't lie, I suppose, and I'm sure, you know, many of us, you know, there was scepticism around, you know, Joe Schmidt had provided this golden era with, you know, historic wins, and I suppose uh, Andy's tenure didn't start off too well, but I think their coaches are polar opposites. And when you're confident and not afraid to make a mistake, you play better because you're not inhibited. And I know that as a player, when you're instilled with that confidence to just go and express yourself and play. And we've seen that with Ireland. I think they've been a joy to watch, but you can see them enjoying their rugby and it's refreshing. Um, and you kind of buy into that and you can feel it off them. So to be recognised as opposed to players as, and men within a setup that they're very relaxed and seen and be able to express themselves is huge. And, you know, we brandish culture around the place, but it's very, very hard to create that. And he seems to have created a really, really good culture where I'd say lads are excited to get into camp, excited to get in an Ireland jersey and excited to play. So I think that will be the case that whatever 23 is picked, you know, as we go pro- progress through the tournament, you know, no one will take a foot wrong because they bought into that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a huge thing for us, I think. Gavin, what do you say about that, about whether that positive vibe is really there and what difference it's going to make? I think it's massive and Lindsay will know better than anybody when you're in the trenches, as it's often put in rugby terms, when you're playing alongside guys who feel like brothers or, or sisters in Lindsay's case and the teams that she played with, you will go that extra inch for the, the players alongside you. And it, there's a sense of, um, I think, almost kinship in that Ireland team, like regardless of your provincial allegiances or where you're playing on a given weekend for your provinces, there are really close relationships, close friendships and bonds formed all across that team. Now, some of them would have existed from even the Joe Schmidt era, but I think Andy Farrell has done an expert job of manifesting that across the squad overall, like uh, that sense of closeness and uh, a sense of willingness as well to to go to battle for each other when things get tough. And as you alluded to there from Vincent Hogan's piece and just from speaking to people in rugby generally, he's a, Farrell is a master manipulator and, and I don't really, I really don't mean that to have any sort of a negative connotation. He's, he's excellent at, um, you know, uh, almost massaging the psychology of a team in such a way that everything is positive, in such a way that it's as enjoyable an environment as Lindsay is making it out to be. And in a way that, exactly as Lindsay outlines, when you're putting on a Lerla jersey or even when you're going to training camp in Portugal, for example, where if they, they've just spent the week, it's something you're actually looking forward to. It's not, um, there's no degree of trepidation about it. And that's what brings me back to why they shouldn't shirk away from that expectation of being the world's number one team in an official capacity, at least, mm-hmm. is because why would you? Like, this is these are some of the best days of your life in a green jersey. They're enjoying the rugby. They're playing really good rugby, and there's massive cause for optimism. I think previous iterations of Ireland teams, if you think back to 2018, you could make an argument that maybe when they had beaten New Zealand and they were de facto the world's number one team, they might have had a little bit of a nosebleed afterwards. And I really don't expect that to be the case with this team because they're ready for the mantle of being that team and, and ready to hopefully challenge for a World Cup later in the year. This is likely to be, uh, Lindsay, Johnny Sexton's last Six Nations. Now, I know given how he operates and what we've seen from him over the years, he's he, you know he's not going to spend too much time, I would imagine, thinking about this being his last. He still has a lot of work to do. He's talking about plans to retire after the World Cup. So, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot on his plate. But do you think that knowing 
somewhere in his mind knowing that this is the last Six Nations will have any impact and if so what kind of a uh, of an impact will it have on him? I would hope not Claire because to be honest I've experienced that myself like 12 months ago being my last game against USA and you and it was brilliant. I knew in my heart hearts it was the last game, but I didn't go into it thinking, you know, we didn't get too emotional about it. The jury's presentation good. We we'd other stuff going on to be honest. Um kind of the opposite to what, what we've just spoken about it, the positivity of, of what we're experiencing now. So Johnny can't get emotional about it because if you get emotional about the what ifs and your performance and it's no more than your first cap, to be honest, you kind of preempt this magnificent debut or this magnificent send off you'd have no control over it and what he needs to do and I have no doubt he will do he will just be the mastermind the the leader the exceptional player that he has been and he will just put no fault wrong he'll just stick to his game plan he'll stick to his routine and nothing will deviate from that for him and I think when the dust settles it's easier to take those kind words in or those moments where you've experienced it but I think he'll just live in the moment and he'll stick to the game plan and he has to because the game will pass him by and that was former Ireland Rugby International Lindsay Pete and Gavin Casey, sports writer with the 42.ie on Today with Claire Byrne. Another talking point in sport this week was Katie Taylor, who it looks like won't get to compete in Croke Park for her boxing title rematch with Amanda Serrano, as her promoter said Croke Park is too expensive. Sean McGoldrick, boxing correspondent with The Sunday World, was on Morning Ireland to discuss. Well, I think from day one, the um, the matchroom sensed uh, a lack of enthusiasm uh, on the part of Croke Park for, for the project. Uh, first of all, um, Matchroom and Katie wanted the fight in you know May and June. That suited their schedule, but it didn't. It didn't suit the GA schedule in the sense that uh, because of the new look championship and the split season, etc., etc. There are a lot more matches in Crow Park now in May and June than than traditionally used to be the case. Uh, Crow Park would have preferred if the fight was in uh, September, when uh, you know the All Ireland series is finished and and uh, you know the pitch would have plenty of time to recover. But notwithstanding that, a date was agreed, uh, May the 20th, there was a, there was a break in the GA calendar. Uh, and the, the issue is that it takes uh, away uh, Crow Park from GA activities for two weeks because the, there's obviously the weekend of the fight and then there's a week, a week to allow, or two weeks to allow the pitch to recover. So that, that was agreed. Now, it wasn't the most suitable date because it was also, it clashed with the... Um, rugby final, the Champions League final in in, uh, the Aviva. So from a security point of view, it put a lot of strain on resources. But the real issue was basically, like in all these things, it boiled down to money. Um, Matchroom have a lot of experience of uh, staging stadium fights in places like uh, Wembley and Cardiff. And they thought they knew how much it would cost, but they were taken aback by what Crow Park was uh, demanding. And the negotiations were... uh, protracted and they, um, you know, just ran into the sand eventually. And that was Sean McGoldrick, the boxing correspondent with The Sunday World on Morning Ireland. Well, that's all we have time for on this edition of Playback Daily. So from me, Louise Herity, thanks for listening. Have a great weekend and enjoy the bank holiday.